can we monitor how glaciers have changed over time? Dr James Lee uses a combination of satellite images, numerical modelling and fieldwork to predict the past, present and future changes of glaciers around the world and to understand their impact on our environment. In this episode, we talk about the wide-ranging effects of glacial melting as a result of climate change, his favourite glaciers, including Kangiata Nanatasermia in Greenland, and his work as chair of the LGBTQ staff and postgraduate network here at Liverpool. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you do, don't forget to share and subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr James Lee onto the show, a glaciologist working in the School of Environmental Sciences here at Liverpool. James, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on, Carol. Now, I've got to say, I'm always really jealous when someone from environmental sciences comes on because you've always got such cool job titles. So to start off, could you talk a bit more about what a glaciologist does? In simple terms, a glaciologist is someone who studies glaciers. Um, and in terms of what, well, there's lots of different areas of glaciology. Uh, so some people uh, look at the internal structure of glaciers and ice sheets uh, through uh, looking at radio waves. Uh, some people look at um, modeling uh, glaciers and ice sheets uh, uh, through uh, numerical models. Others look at uh, satellite images, um, uh, others look at the past landforms and sediments that uh, glaciers leave behind. What I primarily do at the moment is uh, look, at, uh, look at satellite images, mainly of Greenland at the moment, but starting to pan out over uh, across the Arctic region and other regions as well, to uh, look at a special type of glacier that uh, ends in, um, ends in uh, the ocean or ends in lakes. Uh, so these are uh, sometimes called tidewater glaciers, um, and those are the ones that create icebergs. Uh, and marine terminating glaciers and icebergs are pretty much what my main interest uh, is in. But again, I'm, I'm a bit of a magpie in terms of uh, glaciology, so I tend to sort of look at whatever piques my interest, really. Fantastic. Now, I think that most of the listeners will have heard of glaciers before, but what are the big environmental effects when these glaciers start to melt? Because I've been seeing recently that, you know, we're seeing the disappearance of these glaciers. Well, uh, there's a multitude of effects. So uh, first and foremost, as you melt uh, glaciers and ice sheets, then that water needs to go somewhere and generally it ends up in the ocean. And this is one of the things that uh, is really driving current uh, sea level change and sea level rise. And that's only going to continue substantially into the future as well. But uh, as those glaciers and ice sheets retreat, they also have other effects. So for example, in uh, for example, in areas like the Himalaya and um, the Andes, water from these glaciers actually provide a significant water resource. You may have seen uh, a few months ago that they can also lead to catastrophic events. Uh, so in uh, in the Himalaya, uh, there was uh, a huge ice avalanche, uh, which um, caused uh, a big outburst flood that uh, then uh, had a big impact on the people working on dam projects around uh, there and killed a few people uh, very tragically. And there's a whole range of different impacts and hazards uh, that uh, glasses and ice sheets have both on the natural environments, but also how they interact with the human environments as well. 
So to address your research questions, you use a range of approaches um, to complete this work, including remote sensing, numerical modelling and field work. So can you tell us a bit more about how these research methods work together to tell us about the changes happening in glaciers, particularly when they're melting um, as part of the climate emergency? Glaciers, as people may know, sort of like generally tend to flow quite slowly. And because they're um, a result of essentially the long-term climate, they tend to uh, respond relatively slowly to climate. So uh, depending on the size, it might be decades or even sometimes centuries before you'll get a response from some glaciers to uh, what's uh, changing in the climate. And because of that, so a lot of our previous research has focused on sort of the long-term uh, behavior of uh, behavior of glaciers. Uh, so reconstructing what they've done in the past through geomorphology and sedimentology, uh, also seeing what they're doing at the moment. And a really good way of doing that is using satellite images. Uh, we now have nearly 50 years worth uh, of satellite images uh, uh, of glaciers going, uh, going back through time. So we can see what they've done uh, over that time span. And then also uh, the numerical modeling. So simulating uh, these glaciers. And uh, if you can simulate these classes, if you can get the models to replicate what has gone on in the past, then that gives you confidence that as you seek to project into the future to see what they're going to do uh, in the next 50, 100 years, uh, that uh, your numer numerical model can try and then project into the future and see how these, um, uh, how these classes are going to respond to future climate change. So it's really a marrying up of different approaches uh, to uh, try and answer the fundamental question of what are these things going to do in the future. So like we've discussed, your research is looking at how we can use uh, information about how glaciers have changed in the past and how they're changing now to predict how they might change in the future. So can I ask, do you have a favourite glacier? Oh, um, I suppose my favourite one is the one that I did my PhD on. Uh, so it, it's a bit of a mouthful, the name. It's uh, Kangiata Unata Sermia. And uh, it's uh, quite a big glacier in the southwest of Greenland. Uh, but that was the first really big glacier that I ever saw. It's, it will be probably for the rest of my life my favourite glacier. However, I do have a couple of others that, have, that may be worth an honourable mention. Uh, like the first glacier I ever set foot on uh, was in Switzerland during my undergraduate fieldwork. So that's uh, the Bass Glacier de Rolla. And unfortunately now that glacier doesn't exist. It's completely melted. All, all the ice that's left isn't attached to um, the main source area. It's not flowing anymore. And uh, we refer to that in glaciology as being a dead glacier, having dead ice. And it's one of the things that I really think is quite sad is that although it was the first glacier I ever set foot on, I'm never going to be able to do that again uh, because it, it's gone. And uh, yeah, that's sort of uh, another glacier, which although it's my favourite, one of my favourite glaciers, it now unfortunately doesn't exist. I think sometimes with climate change, it's very difficult to see the tangible effect that a warming climate is having on our planet. But the fact that in such a relatively short space of time in terms of the age of the Earth, that that glacier has melted, surely that's a bit of a warning signal that we need to kind of um, wake up and see that climate change is actually having a big, big impact on, on our planet. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, having these glaciers that uh, now don't exist anymore, I mean, the great thing about glaciers is that they they aren't biased, they aren't, they don't have an agenda, uh, but they are 
actual physical manifestations of a changing climate. And there is no arguing with the impacts of climate change when you see that a glacier isn't there anymore. And this is one of the reasons why I think glaciers are one of the best science communication tools in terms of showing that, yes, the climate is changing uh, and it's uh, the warmest that uh, it's probably ever been for the past 10, well, for the past uh, 120,000 years at least. Yeah, and I think when you see things like the CO2 concentrations, it's a very abstract concept. If you're not a climate scientist or an atmospheric scientist, then it doesn't really mean that much. However, knowing that a big chunk of ice has now melted as a result of these warming temperatures, surely that's a bigger indicator of a real emergency that we find ourselves in today. So now looking back to your undergraduate days, you studied geography at the University of Cambridge. So what made you decide to study geography? Um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, because I mean, um, <laughs> one of the things, because I, I very nearly ended up uh, studying um, an economics degree. Uh, oh, wow. so pretty unsure between um, economics and geography as to what I want to do, what I want to learn more about. But because uh, I was really interested in economics, but then I uh, also really like the physical science side of geography. Uh, so uh, I saw geography really as a perfect opportunity to study both like the economic side, the human geographical side, and also uh, the physical science um, side uh, with physical geography uh, as well. So I, I, I suppose it was a bit of a compromise, uh, really, but I, I definitely didn't have a it definitely wasn't a clear thing that I wanted to study when I, uh, when I, went, when I started my undergraduate. While you were studying for your undergraduate degree, well, when did you basically realise that you had a particular interest in glaciers? It probably was, uh, I think it was my second year of um, my undergraduate. And it really was when I went on that second year field course uh, to, uh, to Switzerland. Uh, because at the, I mean, at the time, I, I wasn't particularly enthused by glaciers. Uh, so I had the first year lectures and uh, I actually hadn't really enjoyed it too much. But then when I went over on uh, to the, uh, the field work and actually saw a glacier and was able to walk on it and just see the scale uh, and actually see the, uh, the processes in action, then it really was sort of like a, a light switching on uh, moment. So I think that was probably uh, uh, probably the week that um, I, uh, I decided that I was going to be a glaciologist. Yeah, and I bet, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm sure they are magnificent in real life, seeing, seeing the size of them. Um, and especially because they're always in really fantastic locations, like I know there's some in New Zealand and Greenland, and, you know, you get to go and visit all these cool places. Totally. I mean, uh, I when I went over to Switzerland, I'd never actually left the UK. I'd never been on any overseas holidays or anything like that. So it's my first time in, a, in an overseas country. Like just seeing the mountains uh, in of the Alps, it's like they're a totally different scale for anything that we have in the UK. Um, and it, they almost look unreal. And uh, or at the time I was thinking they, they don't look real. They look like somebody is drawn a sort of like a children's drawing of what a mountain should look like. And then to have like sets within these things, uh, glaciers, and knowing that these glaciers have carved out the landscape uh, and over time just worn them away and the the power of these features is absolutely, it's really awe-inspiring. Maybe I'm sort of a little bit too much of a geek about these things, but I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. 
And so you you pursued, you know, your career in glaciology. And after your undergraduate, you went on to study for masters in quaternary science. Could you tell us firstly a bit more about what quaternary science is and why you decided to do this? Yeah, so uh, it's generally the question that get asked by most people. So when I say did quaternary science for a masters, they say, what on earth is it? Um, so uh, quaternary, quaternary science is simply it's the it's environmental change over the last two and a half million years. Uh, so the last two and a half million years or so is the quaternary period in uh, geological time. Uh, and it's the period during which the Earth has experienced or one of the periods during which the Earth has experienced uh, ice ages. It's also one of the nicer geological periods to study, in my opinion, because you get much more preservation of the geological records. So you get a more complete picture uh, as to what's going on. Although, although some colleagues in geology refer to quaternary science as gardening, because it's all. <laughs> um, I think it's one of the most interesting geological periods to study because you, because you can get that level of detail. You can really understand what um, environmental change has been going on. Um, uh, and how that links up to the present day climate uh, as well. Why, why did you decide to do this masters in particular? Was it just because you were interested in that sort of period of, of geology? That was uh, definitely a strong aspect of it. Uh, the other one was um, I had a really fantastic um, lecturer uh, during my undergrad who uh, uh, he absolutely lived and breathed quaternary uh, science and he was really encouraging of me and like even uh, organised for me to. Uh, be a field assistant uh, for him in field work in Finland. So, uh, I mean, it was just, um, I, and I can't be more thankful to him for uh, the opportunities that he threw my way. Again, sort of that enthusiasm, it was really infectious. It really sort of like rubbed off on me. Yeah, that was sort of like one of the main motivations to actually going into it. But then by moving to Royal Holloway as well, it was, because uh, there's a really, a uh, good set of uh, quaternary scientists uh, based at Royal Holloway. It was fantastic just to have all different aspects of um, environmental reconstruction approaches being uh, being taught. So there was uh, sedimentology, geomorphology, reconstruction of climates using uh, things like pollen, these little um, diatom uh, things, which are like algae made of silica. And then in the oceans as well, you learned about uh, how um, Ocean changes have fundamentally altered the Earth's climate. It's really sort of big fundamental ideas about how the Earth works. And because you're looking over that two and a half million times, uh, million year timescale, you can see these big, big changes, swings of climates from where you get a kilometre's worth of ice over where Stockholm is today to then climates where most of Greenland is missing. So it's really fantastic to have that window open uh, into the, uh, the past history of the plants. And so after this, you went on to study for a PhD at the University of Aberdeen. Now, you mentioned this glacier earlier on in the episode, but could you tell us a bit more about what your PhD was, was focused on? Yeah, uh, so uh, the glacier that I was looking at, uh, so Kangiata Lunata Cernia, uh, so generally I abbreviate it to KNS, just for ease and time, really. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I was looking at KNS, and this is uh, one of the biggest glaciers in southwest Greenland. And it's also located in a really interesting position, because not only is it just behind where Newt's capital city is today, so it's relatively easy to get to, emphasis on the relatively. Uh, it's also located slap bang in the middle of where the Vikings uh, settled Greenland, in a place called the Western Settlement. 
And because of that, there's uh, not only the potential to uh, reconstruct what uh, this glacier has been doing over the last thousand years or so, uh, which is really rare actually for, for glaciers in Greenland, uh, but you also have the human aspect of, sort of like how did it impact uh, the Greenland Vikings uh, when they were there or did it actually impact them? And so the approaches that I was using, it was, yes, reconstructing uh, what the behaviour of the glacier was. But then it was also, as I said, was using satellite imagery and also numerical modelling, which I've never done before in my life and was absolutely terrified of when I started, to uh, then simulate and sort of trying to work out what was actually driving the, uh, uh, the changes in behaviour of this glacier as well. I imagine the chance to go to Greenland, which, you know, it is a very exotic, I guess, place to go and visit. You know, what, what was it like when you went? It was absolutely... Like, I mean, every time I go, I go to Greenland, it, it never fails to take my breath away how stunningly beautiful uh, the place is. Uh, and also, I mean, I, I keep on saying about the scale of the things. Um, when the first time that I went out uh, there, it absolutely blew me away because the only glaciers that I'd seen were like the alpine, like valley glacier types, which were maybe at most about a kilometre across. Uh, but this glacier, this carving front, where the, uh, the glacier end, uh, goes into the fjord, that's five to six kilometres across. So you have five to six kilometres worth of ice, then periodically chunks breaking off. Uh, the sound that it makes, it's like, it's like nothing else, really, because it, it's, well, let's say like nothing else, it's, uh, it's like thunder that carries on for about five, ten minutes continuously, and it the uh, vibrations of it through the air are so strong you can feel them going through you as the as the icebergs carve off. The, the the scale and the enormity of the processes that happen just every single day uh, at that glacier um, are just absolutely stunning. And the terrifying thing is that it's not even the biggest glacier in Greenland. Uh, it's actually like a medium-sized glacier uh, when you take the whole of Greenland into account. So it's, it, yeah, as I said, it's an absolutely amazing place. Yeah, it, it sounds like a real once-in-a-lifetime sort of experience. And I guess it, as well, it must make you feel quite <laughs> maybe insignificant as a human when you see these huge, like, glaciers, you know, breaking apart and things. It, it must really kind of put things in perspective. <laughs> oh, totally, yeah. I mean, there's been a fair bit of... Uh, so some uh, bits of uh, research in the last 10 years or so about geoengineering approaches of trying to uh, prevent um, glaciers from destabilizing. So these glaciers from destabilizing by building big, uh, like big barriers in front of the glaciers for, uh, for them to, uh, to stabilize on. But when you see them in real life, you realize that that is never going to happen. These things are going to do what they like. Uh, and respond, and there's nothing that you can really do to stop them to resp uh, responding to climate. Yeah, I think um, my, my, my dad always says to me that nature is the most powerful thing. And although we as humans think that we can try and, you know, shape it and fix it, it, it really is all powerful. <laughs> From your, your work in Greenland during your PhD, you started as a postdoctoral researcher at Stockholm University in Sweden. So what specific research were you looking at during your time in Sweden? So having started off my PhD, you've been absolutely terrified of numerical modelling. I then ended up doing a numerical modelling postdoc in, in Stockholm. So uh, what we were doing there was uh, we were testing out a, a new type uh, of numerical model. 
because the the physics to actually uh, solve how glacier how ice flows within uh, glaciers and ice sheets is actually very very tricky and comp computationally it takes a lot of computing power. And one of the ways we get around this is by using uh, approximations to how the ice flows. And there's two different approximations that are generally used. So one for slow flowing ice and one for fast flowing ice. And uh, this new numerical model that we were testing was trying to have the approximation for slow flowing ice in slow flowing areas and the approximation for fast flowing ice in the fast flowing areas. And then having the two joined up with the full complex physics uh, that allows the, each uh, aspect to talk to one another. And the aim of it was to try and do physically accurate uh, long-term uh, simulations of not only contemporary ice sheets, but also past ice sheets uh, as well. Because uh, one of the things of using the approximations is that they don't give you the full picture. Whereas if we, uh, so we, we were working on sort of trying to make sure that the, uh, the problems that we had in terms of trying to simulate the glaciers, that they could actually be solvable with the computational power that uh, was available to us at the time. And, and so when you say, you know, there was fast and slow areas, how, how fast is fast? <laughs> uh, well, so for example, the, the fastest flowing ice in Greenland is around about 15 kilometers per year. So uh, it's in glaciological terms, that's like a Formula One racing car. That's <laughs> so it's a way that I so often so I explain uh, sort of how ice flows is it's just a really, really fast rock in that rocks actually do deform and move under their own weight. But with glaciers, that's just sped up. So if you imagine that the Greenland ice sheet is just another rock, it's just a really fast, fast flowing rock. And I imagine like, I mean, it sounds really hard, but really, really interesting as well, that sort of academic challenge. Um, because, you know, normally when you're thinking about how things move, maybe it might be fluids. And so you've got a lot of fluid dynamics to kind of help you, but you're looking at how a solid, you know, structure, a huge solid structure is, is moving and, and also is moving at different speeds in different parts. So I really, I, I guess that must have been, like you said, a really tricky thing to do. Um, and so how, how well did the model hold up in the end? <laughs> we had um, quite a few um, uh, problems with the numerics. So uh, when we were running the, um, the simulations uh, in its full, fullest sense, we were um, getting instabilities in the model, which meant that for a few time, time steps, it was working perfectly fine. But then as soon as uh, we got to about the 10th or 11th time step, this instability would, would creep in and you ended up with an ice sheet that looks more like a hedgehog. Uh, with, <laughs> uh, uh, was created very pretty pictures, but sort of unfortunately not physically realistic. And it was only really towards the end uh, of a postdoc that uh, we managed to solve this. And it's, uh, it did work. And uh, the approach is now uh, also being taken forward in, uh, in other work uh, that's carrying on. Uh, so it's uh, mainly looking at uh, the ice sheets that used to exist north of, north of Scandinavia. Uh, so between Scandinavia and Svalbard. Uh, so it's called the Svalbard Barents Sea ice sheets. And it's really sort of like trying to uncover how the ice sheet both grew uh, out in the first place to cover an entire sea, uh, but then also how it disintegrated as well. 
uh, as uh, the last ice age ended. Okay, brilliant. I mean, that's that's fantastic that it worked in the end. I know myself with coding, sometimes it can be very brutal in the middle when you get in all these pretty graphs or or um, structures, but none of it's right. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this really brings us to your appointment as a lecturer in biology here at the University of Liverpool. So were there any particular reasons that made you decide to join Liverpool? Well, I'm originally from, from Blackpool uh, and uh, the opportunity to move somewhere that was so close to home, especially after being away for so long. In, uh, since, so since I was 18, I've been sort of a bit of a nomad, um, living in the south of England, then north of Scotland, then Sweden. And it's like the opportunity to be based close to home and, and family was uh, definitely a strong pull. Um, the other thing is I also, also support Liverpool. Oh, fantastic reason. That's the only reason, surely. <laughs> and, uh, the, the opportunity to live in Liverpool, it's, I love the city. Uh, so uh, it, it was amazing just to uh, have the opportunity and then uh, I felt even more lucky to, uh, uh, to get the job as well. Now, as well as your research, you're also chair of the LGBTQ plus staff and postgrad network here at Liverpool. So what does this network do and what does your role involve? So the, the LGBT network is really, it's a collection of staff across the, um, the university, including uh, lecturers, PhD students, postdocs, uh, professional services staff who uh, identify as LGBTQ+. And in my role as chair, my role is to sort of liaise with um, those staff members um, uh, and PhD students. And then also uh, talk with people within the university uh, about policies that are being developed or uh, activities uh, that are being planned uh, to raise awareness around LGBTQ plus issues. So what policies are you working kind of on at the moment to make the university a more inclusive place for everyone? So uh, one of the things that uh, we uh, were raising awareness uh, of uh, in just the last few weeks uh, to coincide with Trans Day of Visibility was to raise awareness uh, around trans and non-binary uh, identities uh, of uh, staff and uh, postgraduates across the university uh, and how we can make the university a more inclusive uh, and welcoming place uh, for them. So uh, one of the actions that we've been uh, asking everyone across the university to do is just small, simple steps like, for example, um, adding pronouns to email signatures uh, and uh, Zoom display names and things like that. And then also spending a bit of time just reading some of the experiences uh, of our trans and non-binary colleagues, because until you've um, actually uh, sort of try and uh, put, put yourselves in uh, their shoes, you realise that your experience as a, uh, as a so uh, the experience of many as cisgendered individuals uh, can, and the, and the barriers that exist uh, for uh, trans and non-binary folk can be quite substantial, to say the least. And it's really important that not only are colleagues aware of it, but also that we can act on it to, uh, as I said, make the university uh, an ever more welcoming place uh, to work and to study as well. So looking to the future, what are the aims of your research for the next few years? And as well, are there any other research questions you'd particularly like to explore? 
So for the next few years, because I'm working on a project uh, at the moment, which is looking at taking satellite images, because uh, we now have, as I said uh, earlier in the recording, uh, that uh, there's now 50 years worth of satellite data, and there's literally hundreds of thousands of images uh, available. There's, at the moment, um, the entire Arctic area uh, has complete coverage within three days. It's uh, at, uh, up to 10 meters resolution. And it means that there's so much imagery available and so much science potential in there, but there's not enough hours in the day for people to manually analyze individual images. So what I've been working on is leveraging cloud computing, uh, potential cloud computing uh, to then really speed up this analysis and automate the analysis, not only uh, to answer scientific questions uh, related to glaciology, but also to create uh, tools that the wider community as well will be able to use to allow them to do them to answer the research questions that they're interested in as well. That's absolutely incredible. And I guess it, it must be really exciting to have that much coverage and that much data to go through, even if at the moment, like you said, it's a bit difficult to go through all of it. Um, and then to develop this sort of cloud technology to, to allow more people to, to access it and to analyze it must be really, really exciting. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, the, the potential of uh, cloud computing within, not only in glaciology, but also across um, uh, all areas of Earth's surface science, uh, the potential to leverage this uh, cloud computing power to answer questions that would never previously have been possible to even think about. Uh, it's really huge. So, for example, one of the things that's been working on at the moment is looking at mapping uh, meltwater lakes uh, that form over the Greenland ice sheet. And I actually got into it by accident. So uh, I, I just wanted to stress test the system to see how much it could handle. Uh, so I gave it a stupid, what I thought was a stupid task to do, which was to map uh, the extent of lakes across the entire entirety of Greenland uh, every day uh, for the last uh, 20 years and it didn't break. So then I ended up with 20 years worth of data that I wasn't anticipating having. <laughs> and uh, now we have daily maps of these meltwater lakes. Uh, and these are a really key component of how, uh, the, how the ice sheet responds to uh, climate, how, how the surface melts, but also how you can transfer that water from the surface of the ice sheet through sometimes over a kilometre uh, of water right down to the bed of the ice sheet, which then impacts how fast uh, the ice sheet is flowing uh, as well. Wow, I mean, to think as well, back to when you weren't sure if you wanted to study geography and there you are putting in a silly guess, which actually gives you loads of data to work with <laughs> with your model. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely amazing. It's been so fascinating, James, to hear about all your research that you've been doing and about your amazing career and about the places that you've visited. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. James Lee, and for sharing your Liverpool Scientific. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thank you, Cara.